We've been talking about difficult concepts over the last uh, five weeks, five Sundays or so, and I want to continue that. And it's not that we're talking about these kind of gnarly issues, I guess, I guess the way I would put it, uh, for their own sake or, or just because they're, um, you know, they are contentious or, or even divisive. We're talking about them because if there is anything that you believe that is limiting your ability to completely feel dependent on, comfortable with, and accepting of God's love for you, the absolute love of God, if there's anything that's compromising that, if there's any, if any of those questions you said, hey, why would a loving God do dot, 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 if there's any of those kind of questions, if there's any kind of questions that, why is the church so uh, dot, 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 those are the kind of questions that are going to hold us back. They're going to keep our defenses up. They're going to keep part of us reserved because we're not really sure what's really going on. So what we've been doing over the last few weeks is taking issues like salvation, like eternal life, like the devil, hasatan, like predestination, those types of concepts, whether they're theological or doctrinal or even ritual, and saying, hey, is there a way to understand this that completely and fully comports with Scripture? Everything needs to be scripturally based. But at the same time, just lets the love of God sing out. That's what we're doing. And I'll tell you, every time I take the scriptures and I put them back into a Hebrew context, God's love just shines forth, unadulterated and absolute. And I don't expect it ever to be any other way. You know, the people who wrote our scriptures understood their God in a certain way, from a certain worldview, an Eastern worldview, we have laid over a Western worldview and a different way of understanding life and the world around us. And that's where the conflict comes from. But if we can put it back into that context, things start to change. So this is the acid test of your belief. We're not going to tell you what to believe. That's not our job. It's not my job to tell you. It's not anybody's job to tell you. And if someone is trying to persuade you, they're probably selling something. Be aware, all right? But what we are here to do is to help every single one of us to evaluate our belief system and see if it's really leading us where we want to go. Beliefs have consequences. Beliefs have effects. And those effects, if they're leading you toward a life that looks more and more like Jesus, that is really and truly fearlessly vulnerable, that's the phrase that has just been coming to me more and more lately. That we are willing to be open. We are willing to be vulnerable. We're willing to drop our defenses, but we don't do it in terror anymore because we know that we know that there is this love of God in our back pocket. We've got that winning lottery ticket in our back pocket. Everything really is going to be okay so we can afford to be open. We can afford to let resources flow through us. We can afford to let people in and see if they're trustworthy. And so the acid test of your belief is, does it allow you to live like that? Does it allow you to look like that? Does it allow you to look like Jesus? And if it does, it's nothing broke. Don't fix it. But if not, if there is this dis-ease at the core, if there is this inability for you to just be able to relax and not need anything else to adulterate the moment to make it palatable for you, then maybe there is something that we can talk about. And these are the, the, the classic questions 
that I asked myself, that people have been asking me for the last 25 years. And so here we are, talking about them. We talked about salvation. We talked about these different things. Last week, we talked about predestination. We talked about the fact that that belief system, any belief system, does have consequences. If you truly believe in predestination, if you truly believe that God picks the winners and losers in advance, who's going to heaven, who's going to hell, he chooses that elect, you know, the chosen people, the chosen ones, from the beginning of time, what is your life really going to look like if you truly believe that? I mean, your life is going to go kind of into more of a passive mode right off the bat, isn't it? I mean, why do you have to work so hard? Either you're chosen or you're not. There's not that much you can do about it. You're going to be much more hands-off when it comes to even helping other people or, or trying to help them along the path. Why? Because God has already chosen. There's nothing you can do to change that. That does not look like Jesus. Jesus was active. Jesus was throwing himself into every situation Absolutely, fully. Not just sticking a toe in the water, but jumping into the deep end. No matter what the temperature was, he was in it. He was extending himself to everyone. He was vitally interested in helping people heal. Helping people get to where they really wanted to go. And so, that's where you can take a look at a belief system and say, if this is what it creates, something is wrong. Now, I told you last week, if you want to believe in predestination, if you do and you don't have any of those characteristics and relationships are good, then more power to you. You've got a lot of company. If you don't believe in predestination in your life, you see what I'm saying? It's not about the belief system. It's about the effect of the belief system. It's about what it allows you to do. I gave you another example last week. There were two examples when I was trying to get this point across. And the other one was about the law. If we really believe that the law, if God's justice is the, the primary platform, the primary foundation of our relationship with God, if it's God's justice and law, then obedience becomes the highest good. Obedience becomes the litmus test for our connection with God, the litmus test for our um, acceptability to God, our salvation, if you will. And so if that's the case, what effect is that going to have on our life? And the question that I suppose that I would like to ask is, does obedience to the law, does obedience to the law really make us better people? Does obedience to the law really make us better people, decent people, people who are acceptable to God? That's the question. Now just hang on to that. Put that in the, tuck that in the back for a second. Because I want to tell you a couple of stories as we start to break this down a little bit. The first story I encountered as I was prepping for the message, and two American rabbis were traveling in Israel. <laughs> Sounds like the start of a bad joke, doesn't it? <laughs> Where's the Catholic priest in the uh, whatever? Two American rabbis are traveling in Israel, and they get on a bus to go to another city, and an Orthodox Jew gets on the bus. Okay, it's really starting to sound like a joke now, isn't it? So the Orth- and, and he's got the black hat, he's got the you know the frontlets, he's got the whole the whole nine yards, absolute. Orthodox Jew, you know, practicing to the nth degree. And he sees these two, and I I guess he kind of realizes what he's dealing with here. So he strikes up a conversation, but what he really strikes up is a theological debate. 
He wants to debate these two. And obviously he wants to put them in their place because here are these two upstart Americans come out here and they're in their street clothes and traveling the Holy Land and they have no idea, you know, what the faith is really all about and he's going to let them know. And so they're having this conversation and one of them's kind of hanging back but the other's trying to engage and they're trying, he's trying to get through to this guy but this guy is so smug. He's so condescending. He is so overbearing, absolutely certain of his beliefs that he's just bulldozing over anything the other one has to say. And finally, in frustration, the American rabbi says to him, you know, in fluent Hebrew, he, he says, Naval Birshut HaTorah. And the guy goes absolutely nuts, apoplectic, furiously angry. You're calling me Naval? You know, how dare you? And he goes, we don't have any idea why he would be so angry, do we? If you translate Naval Bershut HaTorah, basically it means Naval with permission of the Torah. Naval with permission of the law. Now, before we can start to unpack why that was so offensive to him, let's find out who Naval is. I want to read you um, a long, a long, a kind of a longish story. It comes from 1 Samuel. And it's a story that you probably haven't heard very much. It's one of those tucked in the Old Testament, you know. And I, I want to read, you know, the, kind of the, the whole thing, partly because it's such a darn good story. I mean, it reads like a novel or something, um, or at least a passage from a novel. And I want you guys to get kind of a feel for some of the stories in the Old Testament. Maybe it'll intrigue you to go back there and take a read. Um, let me set the stage a little bit. This is... Um, during the reign of Saul, who was the first king of Israel, and David, who uh, was the one who killed Goliath, you know, and he was like uh, very prominent among the uh, among the the Jews, the Hebrews, and won a bunch of battles. And Saul started really getting jealous and getting paranoid about him. Tried to kill him a couple of times, and David realized he needed to hightail it out of there. He goes into exile, but has several hundred men who are loyal to him. And they're living in exile out in the wilderness. And while they're doing this, they're having to fend off Saul. Whenever Saul figures out, gets word of where he is, he sends an army to him to try to wipe him out. So they've got to fight Saul. But in between those times, they're just living off the land. But what they're also doing is protecting the farmers and the shepherds, the Hebrew farmers and shepherds, on the frontier between Judea and all the other kingdoms. So they're protecting them and helping them stay alive, keeping them from the raiders and doing all the things. So they kind of have this, this two-front war going on. So we pick it up right there. Samuel, who is the, the prophet who anointed Saul and anointed David and, and all this, he has died. Samuel died, and we're at one uh, Samuel starting at uh, chapter twenty-five, starting right at verse one, and it's not in your in your books or anything. So, and I'm going to read from the Good News Bible just because it reads a lot more in uh, contemporary English. So maybe just close your eyes and listen. Samuel died, and all the Israelites came together and mourned for him. Then they buried him at his home in Ramah. After this, David went to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man of the clan of Caleb named Nabal who was from the town of Maon, and who owned land near the town of Carmel. He was a very rich man, the owner of 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And his wife, Abigail, was beautiful and intelligent, but he was a mean, bad-tempered man. Nabal was shearing his sheep in Carmel, and David, who was in the wilderness, heard about it. So he sent ten young men with orders to go to Carmel, find Nabal, and give him his greetings. He instructed them to say to Nabal, David sends you greetings, my friend. 
with his best wishes for you, your family, and all that is yours. He heard that you were shearing your sheep, and he wants you to know that your shepherds have been with us, and we did not harm them. Nothing that belonged to them was stolen all the time they were at Carmel. Just ask them, and they will tell you. We have come on a feast day, and David asks you to receive us kindly. Please give what you can to us, your servants, and to your dear friend David. David's men delivered this message to Nabal in David's name. And then they waited there, and Nabal finally answered, David, who is he? I've never heard of him. The country is full of runaway slaves nowadays. I'm not going to take my bread and water and the animals I have butchered for my sheep shearers and give them to people who come from I don't know where. And David's men went back to to David and told him what Nabal had said. Buckle up your swords, he ordered. Get a rope. And they did. That isn't in there, the get a rope part. (laughs) Buckle up your swords, he ordered, and they all did. David also buckled on his sword and left with about 400 of his men, leaving 200 behind with the supplies. One of Nabal's servants said to Nabal's wife, Abigail, Have you heard? David sent some messengers from the wilderness with greetings for our master, but he insulted them. Yet they were very good to us. They never bothered us. And all the time we were there with them in the fields. Nothing that belonged to us was stolen. They protected us day and night the whole time we were with them looking after our flocks. Please think this over and decide what to do. This could be disastrous for our master and all his family. He's so mean, he won't listen to anybody. So Abigail quickly gathered 200 loaves of bread, two leather bags full of wine, five roasted sheep, two bushels of roasted grain, 100 bunches of raisins, 200 cakes of dried figs, and loaded them on donkeys. And then she said to the servants, you go on ahead and I will follow you. But she said nothing to her husband. She was riding her donkey around a bend on a hillside when suddenly she met David and his men coming toward her. Now David had been thinking... Why did I ever protect that fellow's property out here in the wilderness? Not a thing that belonged to him was stolen, and this is how he pays me back for the help I gave him? May God strike me dead if I don't kill everyone, every last one of those men before morning. And he's got 400 men to do it with. But when Abigail saw David, she quickly dismounted and threw herself on the ground at David's feet, and she said to him, Please, sir, listen to me. Let me take the blame. Please don't pay any attention to Nabal. That good for nothing. (laughs) He is exactly what his name means, a fool. The name Naval in in Hebrew literally means stupid. (laughs) It literally means wicked, with an emphasis on being impious. It literally means foolish. It literally means vile. That's what the word means. Do you think it may catch on in naming kids? Uh, Probably not, right? But this is, this, is, this is part of the Hebrew tradition. Each one of their names means something. It, it is the outward sign of the inward essence of a person. And so this is the way it works in their culture. Um, he's exactly what his name means. He's a fool. I wasn't there when your servants arrived, sir. It is the Lord who has kept you from taking revenge and killing your enemies. And now I swear to you by the living Lord that your enemies and all who want to harm you will be punished like Nabal. Please, sir, accept this present I have brought you and give it to your men. And please forgive me, sir, for any wrong that I have done. The Lord will make you king, 
and your descendants also, because you are fighting his battles, and you will not do anything evil as long as you live. She's really buttering it up now, isn't she? If anyone should attack you and try to kill you, the Lord your God will keep you safe, as someone guards a precious treasure. As for your enemies, however, he will throw them away, as someone hurls stones with a sling. And when the Lord has done all the good things he has promised you and has made you king of Israel, then you will not have to feel regret or remorse, sir, for having killed without cause or for having taken your own revenge. And when the Lord has blessed you, sir, please do not forget me. Quite a speech, huh? And David said to her, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you today to meet me. Thank God for your good sense and for what you have done today in keeping me from the crime of murder and from taking my own revenge. The Lord has kept me from harming you, but I swear by the living God of Israel that if you had not hurried to meet me, all of Nabal's men would have been dead by morning. Then David accepted what she had brought him and said to her, Go back home and do not worry. I will do what you want. And Abigail went back to Naval, who was at home, having a feast fit for a king. He was drunk and in a good mood, so she did not tell him anything until the next morning. Then, after he had sobered up, she told him everything. And he suffered a stroke and was completely paralyzed. And some ten days later, the Lord struck Naval and he died. Other translations say that it was a, it was a heart attack. And the the direct translation is that his heart died within him and he became as a stone. So you make of that what you will. When David heard that Nabal had died, he said, Praise the Lord. (laughs) Good old David, you got to love him. He has taken revenge on Nabal for insulting me and has kept me his servant from doing wrong. The Lord has punished Nabal for his evil. And then David sent a proposal of marriage to Abigail. What do you think she said? She said yes. Yes. What's going on here? All right. What, what's, what's happening here? And more importantly, and you're probably thinking, how is this relevant to the law? What the heck? You know, I've got three questions for you. First question is, why was David so angry? Why was he so angry at, at Naval? Obviously, it's because he wasn't getting the reciprocity that he knew that he deserved. He had spent all this time for free protecting not just Naval's property and, and, and Naval's resources, but everyone, everyone. And so he's protecting all this for free. And then when he just asks for some sustenance, for some food, he is not only denied, but he's denied with an insult. So he, he had a right to be angry. What were Naval's sins? What did he actually do that was wrong? Well, the first is a sin of pride. Buried in that... That speech of Naval to David's men is a sense of, of superiority. David came from a different, from the other side of the tracks. He came from Bethlehem. That was not a huge city. He didn't have the same kind of ancestral pedigree that Naval imagines that he has. And so there is a condescension. There is a sense that David is not worthy of him, of his food, of his sustenance. And so there is that pride that's going on. Secondly, there's gluttony, of course. He is overindulging in food and wine and probably sex, and he's leading himself into greater and greater ill health that finally ends up taking his life. There's greed, of course. The refusal to help the poor, which was a huge no-no in, in, in terms of, of Eastern hospitality, Mid-Eastern hospitality, to refuse someone who comes to you, huge 
there are two. There are there's a a midrash, a, a later story about this. That uh, Naval had two properties. One was at Moan, and the other was at Carmel. And if a poor person would come to him and ask him for help, he'd say, "Sure, you can have all the help, but I don't have it here. You have to go to my other property." And then if they went to the other property, they'd say the same thing and send it back. So it's kind of a shell game that he was playing, and he was always pushing them off someplace else. And so there was this idea where he would just refuse to help the poor. He was never going to let any of his resources go. And then finally, there's ingratitude. You know, All of these are the signs of a rampant egocentrism. This man was so completely egocentered, arrogant, selfish, and with a certainty that he was right in everything that he did. But, third question... What sin did Naval not commit? He didn't break the law. He didn't break one statute of the 613 laws that the rabbis recognized in the Old Testament. Abigail points this out. She said, David's revenge on Naval would be shameful. It would be murder because it was without cause. There was no cause for it. He didn't actually break any law. Naval had no legal obligation to feed David or his men or really anybody. There's no law that says you have to do it. He had, there was no law that said he had to turn over his goods to anybody. He did exactly and only what the law allowed. No more and no less. Now there's a 13th century a Spanish rabbi who was also a mystic and he was a scholar, a Bible commentator. He goes by the name of Nachmanides. Uh, and he was writing a, a treatise, uh, a commentary on what it meant to be holy, right? And what he was saying to the people, his fellow Jews, he said that we must be held to a higher standard than just the mere keeping of the law, the following of the code. We need to be held to a higher standard to be holy, to actually be holy, is to live way beyond what is just required in order to keep the spirit and the purpose of the law. And what is the purpose of the law? If you really boil it down, the purpose of the law, if you look at all the statutes, is to preserve the life of the community, to preserve the life of the clan, the tribe, the family. It's also to preserve individual lives. And beyond that, It's to bring the presence of God in a concrete way into every single moment that we live. To keep bringing the awareness of God's presence over and over throughout our day, saturating our day. If you really followed the Torah, if you really followed the statutes, you couldn't walk more than about 10 steps without being reminded in some way from the way that you prepare your food to the dress that you put on, your clothing, to everything that you do, to the prayers that you said, constantly bringing God's presence back into your awareness. It's a beautiful thing. To us, it seems so restrictive, but if you were really flowing with it, you would be preserving life, preserving relationship, and preserving awareness of God's presence. You can't do that by simply following rules. This is a way of life that starts from the inside out. It's not about conformance from the outside in. It's about transformance from the inside out. The hallmark of of this way of life for the Jews and of the law was that the law needed to be written on your heart. It had to be something that was so intrinsic to you that you lived it. It was muscle memory. 
Your actions flowed out of you because the law was written on your heart. It's not just a code that you had to follow. And to even make the point a little bit sharper, Torah doesn't mean law in Hebrew. What Torah actually means is instruction and guidance. It's the instruction of God. It's the instruction or the guidance of Moses. It's not the law. It was translated into nomos in Greek, which means law as we think of law. But that wasn't the original intent. It's like a hand at the small of your back guiding you and showing you and directing you. And if you're starting to go too far to the right, it pulls you a little back to the left. But it was not the be-all and end-all absolute that we were just supposed to follow mindlessly. And so it's a whole different thing. What basically... Nachmanides, what the Jews, what Jesus, what the evangelists are all saying is that not until we graduate from mere obedience to law can we begin to live in real relationship. Can we begin to live in love? We have to graduate from the slavish following of rules. Look how Jesus puts it. This is in your handouts if you want to take a look at Mark 7, starting right at verse 1. Some Pharisees and teachers of the law, here we are, the Pharisees were the primary and prime examples of legalism gone wrong, okay? And I'm reading in good news still, so it's not going to exactly match the screens, but follow along. Some Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus, and they noticed that some of his disciples were eating their food with hands that were ritually unclean. You had to wash your hands before you ate. Not to clean them, but just as a ritual, part of the ritual purity code. And they weren't doing this. That is, they had not washed them in the way the Pharisees said the people should. For the Pharisees, as well as the rest of the Jews, follow the teaching they received from their ancestors. They do not eat unless they wash their hands in the proper way nor do they eat anything that comes from the market unless they wash it first. And they follow many other rules which they have received, such as the proper way to wash cups and pots and copper bowls and beds. But they were out in the field, and they didn't easily have the ability to do this, and so they were eating their food. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why is it that your disciples do not follow the teaching handed down by our ancestors, but instead eat with ritually unclean hands? And Jesus answered them, How right Isaiah was when he prophesied about you. You are hypocrites, just as he wrote. These people, says God, honor me with their words, but their heart is really far away from me. It is no use for them to worship me because they teach human rules as though they were my laws. You put aside God's command and obey human teachings. And Jesus continued, You have a clever way of rejecting God's law in order to uphold your own teaching. For Moses commanded, respect your father and your mother. And if you curse your father or your mother, you are to be put to death. That's a written law, one of the 613. But they had come up with all these oral traditions that they wrapped around these written laws so that you would have to break oral traditions before you ever broke a written law. They were called hedges or protective fences around the law. But they took them so seriously that they became as important, or in some cases, as Jesus is going to point out, more important than the written law that they were originally erected to protect. And they were putting this all on the people's shoulders. 
And they were so burdened, and no one had any idea which side was up. They had always to go to the Pharisees, which was their power base over the people, to find out if they were clean or not, if they could trade or not, if they could be part of the community or not, if they had to go to the temple and go to the priest and become ritually cleansed or not. And this is what Jesus is trying to blow up because it is putting these block walls between the people and their God. And Jesus continued, You have a clever way of rejecting God's law in order to uphold your own teaching. For Moses commanded, Respect your father and your mother. And if you curse your father or mother, you are to be put to death. But you teach that if people have something they could use to help their father or mother, but say, This is korban, which means it belongs to God, they are excused from helping their father or mother. In this way, the teaching you pass on to others cancels out the word of God. And there are many other things like this that you do. Now think about what's going on here. You see what's happening? They're using the law as a fig leaf, as a shield, to do whatever the heck they want. To shelter whatever resources or income that they want. This idea of korban is a beautiful idea. It's the idea that you could take a chunk of your resources and dedicate them to God. And by publicly declaring them korban, you're saying they cannot be used for any other purpose. You're creating a system of accountability with your community. I'm declaring this Quran. This is dedicated to God. It will be used for God in some way. But they were also supposed to be taking care of their parents. And if they didn't want to do that, if they didn't want their money going that way, because maybe it didn't give them the prestige, maybe it didn't give them the ability to control funds, who knows what their reasons were. But they could take that money that should have been going to their parents, declare it korban, and then they were absolved from having to care for their parents. How many people do you know that use the law as a fig leaf? I mean, haven't you seen this before? Has it happened to you? Have you been sued? Have you been involved in some kind of legal scuffle where you see people using the law to their own advantage? hiding behind the shield of it as if they're so lawful and law-abiding. I was involved in one lawsuit that went to the federal court. This is a long time ago. I was working for a uh, CD-ROM company. Does anybody remember what those were? Anyway, um, what we were tra- actually what we were trying to do was we were going to do a CD. It was right at the, at the anniversary of Elvis Presley's death. And uh, we were going to produce this CD based on a lot of his um, bodyguards and friends and people who knew him personally. And they were going to give us all these personal photos that had never been seen anywhere. And they existed outside of the Elvis Presley foundation, which you know guards his image like crazy, like Disney does. So we, we had this supposedly a whole cache of photos and stories and things that we could do. We we're going to create this CD-ROM. And when it came right down to it, they basically had nothing, certainly nothing of any value. And so the head of the company took him to court, ended up in federal court. Not exactly sure why. Maybe it was across state lines. I don't remember. I had to go up and testify. It took the judge about 30 seconds to render his verdict at the end of that. Because the way that the contract was written is that they would give us what they had. What they had was nothing. And they knew that going into the contract. And we paid them, I forget how many tens of thousands of dollars for the rights to do this. They took the money. They gave us nothing. And we had absolutely no recourse because they were covered by standing behind the fig leaf and the shield of the law. People do this all the time. And in a religious setting... Don't people do this all the time? 
Last week I asked you, what is one of the words that you hear, one of the criticisms that you, and judgments you hear leveled at the church all the time, is that the church is full of hypocrites. The church people and the church itself does not do what it says it believes. This is an example of that. Naval is an example of that. He counted himself as a righteous man because he didn't break the law. And yet, look what he was doing. The Pharisees counted themselves as the righteous of the righteous, as the true heirs of Moses because of their lawfulness. And look what they were doing. And Jesus is calling them on that. He's saying, can you see what is going on here? Does obedience to the law make us better people? Does obedience to the law make us decent people? Obedience to the law makes us lawful people, but it doesn't necessarily make us decent It doesn't necessarily make us better. If we believe in law, if we then we're going to keep the law, if that's really what we believe, if that's the basis of our relationship with God, obedience to the law, then we're going to keep the law. But we still may be naval. We still may be wicked. But if we desire to be better, if we desire to be decent by and through obedience to the law, to our precepts, then, of course, we will be better. But it's not the same thing. Using the law to buy God's acceptance or buy God's salvation is a fool's errand. It doesn't work. We already have God's acceptance, for crying out loud. And to use the law in that way, to think that we can follow our way into acceptance, into some sort of reward, is not going to work. But using the law to become closer to God, more like God, that's the entire purpose of the law. That's the entire purpose of the guidance. Look how Paul puts it at Galatians 3. This is one of his most fiery letters, starting at verse 10. Those who depend on obeying the law live under a curse. Those who depend on obeying the law live under a curse. For the scripture says, whoever does not always obey, everything that is written in the book of the law is under God's curse. Now it is clear that no one is put right with God by means of the law because the scripture also says only the person who is put right with God through faith shall live. But the law has nothing to do with faith. To be put right with God, as we understand it, is to be connected with God, to be one with God. That's to be right with God, not appeasing God's anger as we typically think of it in legal terms. Jesus showed us that he and God and life and love don't work that way. We connect with God through faith, not law. Law has nothing to do with faith. Faith here, though we have to understand, is not mental belief to the Jews. That's not what they're talking about. It's action. It's a way of living as God lives and continuing to do so. In other words, it's living in love. Living in love, experiencing a love that only exists beyond law, beyond obedience. you got to get out of the contract and over into that far field with God to experience the love that he has. Because if you imagine it still legally, if you imagine it still some sort of reciprocity for what you do, you'll never experience the law, never experience the love. It has nothing to do with requirements or obligations, is simply the sheer joy of service, the sheer joy of relationship. And it's the only power in heaven or on earth that can give us a confidence of that connection with God, 
a knowing that we are already worthy of connection and already loved by God. And finally, how does John put it? Take a look at 1 John 4, starting at verse 17. Love is made perfect in us in order that we may have the courage on the judgment day, and we will have it because our life in this world is the same as Christ's. Do you see what he's saying here? Love is made perfect in us in order that we won't have to fret or worry about the judgment day, worry about our death. We don't have to fear death. And we'll have this confidence because our life in this world is the same as Christ's. It looks like Christ. It's being lived like Christ. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out all fear. So then love has not been made perfect in anyone who is still afraid because fear has to do with punishment. We love because God first loved us. When our lives, when our choices graduate from mere obedience to law and move beyond the fear of punishment or even beyond the desire for reward, we've got to get past all that sort of reciprocity. In other words, when we realize that our greatest pleasure is in giving pleasure, and for no other reason but because of the immediate transaction that's happening right now, when our lives are lived like Jesus, then we're going to have that courage on Judgment Day. We're, not, we're going to lose our fear of death. Fear is no longer going to be our default position. We will have confidence in our connection with God that obedience to law will never give us. Never give us. Our lives will reflect that confidence in our ability to be fearlessly vulnerable. That's the way it works. We've got to take our ideas about law and obedience and turn them 180 degrees if we really want to fall into the relationship that Jesus has for us. Beyond obedience, beyond law, into the fullness of what grace really means. And then we can have confidence in our connection. Let's pray. Father, again, we just thank you. We thank you that there is a way for us to find this confidence in you, our unseen God. You who we have never seen. We can have confidence in our connection with you because we can see it lived out in our connection with each others, with each other. Save us from our legalism. Save us from this notion that somehow it's just obedience, that there's some mathematical formula that we can employ that will bring us to you. Help us to break through that, like football players breaking through those paper signs. We want to break through that and get to the other side and just live our lives in the kind of relationship that gives us the confidence that the unseen relationship has to be the same because it animates all of our physical ones. These relationships are the mirror of you, Father. Help us to live those, take pleasure in those, and find out who you really are. Father, thank you for loving us. And as we just read, we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen? Let's stand.